and welcome in to another episode of Turning the Corner, a Detroit Tigers podcast. I am Kieran Steckley. With me, he writes for The Athletic. He's not Tim McGraw, but he's looking for a shotgun rider to ride beside him and sing into the radio. He is Cody Stavenhagen. Cody, how you doing, man? <laughs> These are good every week. Every week, they're just getting better. I'm doing great. I had that one in the chamber for a month. But because of Twitter, <laughs> and like I had to do like you know he's locked in but locked out. I, I had to do all these other ones, so I've been waiting to use that one. I'm glad you appreciate it. A little Tim McGraw never hurt anybody. No, no, very good, good for the soul. It is good for the soul. And you know what was good for the soul? As someone who watches every Tigers game and wants them to be relevant and competitive. It was really good to see the environment of Comerica Park this week, Cody. I know the win-loss wasn't in, in favor, and obviously Miguel Cabrera did not launch number 500 during the home stretch. But I got to tell you, it was good for my soul to see baseball back in Detroit is kind of what it felt like to me. You were there every day. You got to observe it. You walked around the stands, saw the energy. I mean, what did it look like to you? Yeah, it was really cool. We've talked about it before, but it seems like at least what you hope is a preview of what these next couple of years could be like. Could it begin being like this every day? Um, you know, when I was doing an MLB.com internship and I covered the, the Cubs for the pers- first part of 16, and it was so fun just being around, just being in Chicago when the Cubs were really good. You know, I would take... Uh, I would take the red line up to Wrigley Field and the train would just be packed with people wearing Cubs gear and talking about the Cubs. And, you know, you go to a bar afterward and the Cubs highlights would be on and the bartender would be talking about the Cubs. And just the whole city was rallying around the team. And that's already happening a little bit in Detroit. And the Tigers are still below 500. And so I think it's just a really cool preview of what could be I think you're seeing a renewed appreciation for Miguel Cabrera as he nears 500 and the fans have really come out to support him. And particularly with Shohei and Otani in town, we got to see a really good baseball environment this week. Unfortunately, the next day's game was brutal and awful. But Yeah, brutal and awful like a like a Big 12 football game. But the, <laughs> And, the, and I, I, I want to differentiate because we talked about it a lot with the, uh, the summer baseball bash or whatever the technical yeah. technical name was, was but that was a one game so this was a whole homestand so i so it, i think it's kind of like one level up so it was great to see obviously the angels being in town was that your first time seeing shohei was that in person no i've um seen otani a few times actually i went on a trip to anaheim i guess he might have been injured um i'd seen him play in person before I had not seen him pitch in person before. You never see him at the peak of his powers, though, which is what he's at right now. Right, and that was kind of a... I realized that before the game. I was kind of like, oh, I get to watch Otani tonight. And then I was like, I've seen Otani before. But this is different. This is like... This is a different Shohei Otani, and it was one of the best baseball games I've ever seen. One of the... Probably the best individual baseball performance I've ever seen. Pitching into the eighth inning, hitting just a massive bomb of a home run, and just a captivating, captivating performance. One that I'll probably remember forever. That was one of those moments that, okay, yeah, you'll tell your kids and your grandkids about 
watching Otani in his MVP season, and you saw him pitch and hit a bomb on the same day at Comerica Park. It was uh, it was really special to watch. You know, when when my dad came on our podcast for the Father's Day weekend, he talked about how growing up, Detroit for him was a baseball town. He said everything was baseball, 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 and it's obviously one of the longest standing teams. Uh, in Major League Baseball, in the American League. It's a lot of history, a lot of uh, history for the fans as well, not just the team, and appreciation of baseball. And that was sort of what I thought of with the whole like cheering and MVP chant thing for Shohei, where it was it was one of those things where they weren't, the, the people in the stands doing that in that moment weren't necessarily Tigers fans. They were baseball fans and they were recognizing what they were seeing was special that, that that's sort of how i interpreted it had you ever seen anything like that in your time covering major league baseball no i cannot think of that level of cheers for a visiting player even um i was in texas i in one of big poppies last years i don't remember that kind of reception i i i can't think of anything that quite rivals it and for any listeners who didn't see what Joe Madden said about Detroit, you should go look up his comments. Joe Madden, who, again, I covered at the start of 16, is a fascinating manager, a really good storyteller, and he's a, he's a romanticist about the game. And he talked about the fans of Detroit being knowledgeable. He said, look, these people were raised on Ernie Harwell. And he got very nostalgic and kind of emotional talking about Detroit and I think he made some good points. I think there are some things ingrained in this community where there is an appreciation for the game beyond just the Tigers. It's it's good to see people back at Comerica Park and rallying around the team. And I think kind of those things are being resurrected in the community. And yeah, these people were raised on Ernie Harwell and Tiger Stadium and the 71 All-Star Game and, and sometimes things that go beyond just the Tigers. And, and we, we can't not talk about this. So speaking of things that go just beyond, um, Jack Morris made a comment and a voice that was disparaging in nature, and he's been suspended indefinitely from broadcasting. Um, I thought what you wrote for The Athletic summed it up perfectly, where you are just more disappointed. I don't want to take words out of your mouth. I'll, I'll hand this to you in a second. But it just kind of seemed like you were, and I was, disappointed in the whole episode because what it did was it took away from the greatness of Shohei Otani. We had to talk about Jack Morris and what he said and how he said it and then how he tried to apologize as opposed to look at this amazing human being p- performing in this amazing sport. But I'll, I'll let you kind of take take it from there. Yeah, it was what I wrote kind of touched on the juxta, juxtaposition between Jack Morris made uh, remarks in a voice that were that were seen as disparaging. And the next day we saw baseball at its best, a beautiful game between the Tigers and Angels, a game when baseball and all its diversity and the global nature of the sport was really displayed between Shohei Otani, between people waving Venezuelan flags in the stands for Miguel Cabrera. You saw a black man and Justin Upton hit a home run. You saw a white kid from a small town in Arizona and Tarek Skubal pitch on the mound. There were players from the Dominican Republic and Cuba on the field. It was very interesting how 
all that kind of came to light um, the day after Jack Morris was um, suspended. I don't want to get into the political nature of this or anything. I don't want to necessarily, I don't think it's my place to say what should happen to Jack Morris or what his intentions were. But I, I do think it's important that we recognize um, the nature of implicit bias. I think there was implicit bias in what Jack Morris said, whether I don't, I, it probably wasn't meant to be uh, hateful or anything like that, but I think it was an example of implicit bias. He basically mocked um, or replicated an Asian accent. Uh, you will hear a lot of people in the Asian American community talk about how that is offensive to them or talk about how they deal with that in their day-to-day life all the time. And I think it's important that implicit bias is generally what explicit bias is rooted in. So we talk about um, when people commit hateful or overtly racist acts, um, that is obviously a different degree than, than uh, you know, kind of a just an insensitive remark Jack Morris made on a live broadcast. But those things are generally a result of implicit bias. I think it's important that we don't overlook implicit bias, that we don't write it off and say, oh, that's not that bad, that we don't say, oh, that's not uh, racist, because sometimes overlooking implicit bias also leads to a perpetuation of explicit bias in our society. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but I do think it's just important that we that we recognize that and we all look inward a little bit and think about um, things we do, whether it's other races, people with disabilities, uh, whatever it may be, I think we all carry some implicit biases and biases, and it's important that we that that we check that um, and be respectful of other people and other cultures. Especially given the events around the world of the past year, um, that's something that has become more of a conversation and dialogue. I'm not gonna, you know tell everybody what that means i'll recommend you go look at things that pablo Estori has said and written about as well as mina kimes they both talked written tweeted whatever about this stuff at length they know they've experienced it i would say go to them if you're looking for examples of what cody and i are talking about here so um Far be it from me to try to examine that from their perspective because I don't have their yeah. they don't I don't yeah, have their very good they, I don't have very their perspective. So uh, not an easy way to transition from that, but you know back to uh, back to some baseball. Uh, uh, actually, one more point on that. I just want to reiterate that like what Shohei is doing is so special, and also how he handled it was was yeah. special as well i think he needs to get some credit for how he handled it um he didn't seem bothered by it at all or whatever and maybe he is but in terms of like being the bigger person in, in that moment he was he was the bigger person in that moment um so i want to give him give him credit for that and can the con- let's make the conversation end like this uh he's a freaking amazing baseball player and we are lucky we get to watch him on a nightly basis. He's truly special. Insane. Absolutely. And so, so shout out Shohei Otani. All right, so moving on, um, I just want to get this topic out of the way because I don't want to spend too much time on it before we get to other stuff. A uh, little bit of a reemergence for Willie Castro? A little bit? A little bit? Just a little? 
little bit. A little bit. Every now and then you see Willie Castro hit a towering home run to right field. And it's like, wow, this guy, uh, there's a lot of potential in this bat. He hit home runs on back-to-back days. Very good job. Maybe a little bit of an offensive resurgence. And then every now and then, more than every now and then, you see some bad at-bats. That home run was off Otani, by the way. Off Otani. That doesn't... Not that many people do that, and it was a blast too. Um, it was a it was a beautiful home run to watch. And then sometimes you see Willie Castro, who is now playing in left field, dive for a ball that I thought he really had no chance to catch, and it gets by him, and, and the Blue Jays get an extra base. The Tigers are running out of positions to move him to. In fact, they are out of positions to move him to after this. Uh, he's still getting used to the outfield. Some imperfections are to be expected, but shockingly. Willie Castro is just not a good defensive baseball player. So these flashes of potential, of power, of being able to hit the ball need to become more consistent for this continued lengthy experiment to be worth it. So I looked it up. That home run off Otani, that was his first home run since July 23rd. And that home run on July 23rd was his first home run since June 16th. It is now August, late August. So you talk about the struggles and, you know, give him credit for going out there every day and, you know, and, you know, trying his best or whatever. Uh, But it's been a rough season for Willie Castro out of positions and maybe eventually out of options. Uh, not in a baseball sense, in a figurative sense, out of options. Like, what are you supposed to do with Willie Castro? So, you know, hopefully he can turn around and, you know, he can re- regain the form he had last season. No one would have predicted what he's go- what, what's been happening for him this year. Yeah, I mean, you, you said regression, but I don't think you saw a guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't have expected it to be quite yeah, this bad. That, that, that's fair. So, I wanted to get to we, – we've done a lot of talking on this podcast about aggressive base running that the Tigers exhibit this year. Um, you point out this week on Twitter, it's also led to a lot of uh, outs on the bases. Um, that's not necessarily my point here. But we're also seeing some aggressiveness in the field. Jonathan Scope had two plays this week that were just sheer aggressiveness. He had the, the throw to home that Grayson Griner dropped that would have beat the runner out. And then... On Friday against the Angels on a bunt, or excuse me, against the Blue Jays, he fielded a bunt, not the easiest bunt to field, mind you, and fired over to Jamer Candelario at third base to get the lead runner in a crucial spot. Uh, one of them worked out, the other one didn't. The one that didn't work out was not Jonathan Scope's fault. And he was unapologetic after after the game, saying like, hey, look, I, I stand by that play, I've you know, that's what I believe was the right move and blah, blah, blah. And even though AJ would have liked the two outs there. So I, I, I like, just like I like the aggressive base running, kind of a fan of the aggressive play in the field, Cody. This is such an interesting baseball discussion. We could talk about this for an hour. The double play ball, that should have been a double play. Jonathan Scope made the wrong baseball play. Probably could have gotten two outs. Instead, he tried to save a run. I pointed out, yeah, he made the wrong play, but I didn't necessarily fault Scope. I wasn't going to criticize him for it because 
I understood his intentions, and he did make a good throw, and if Grayson Griner would have caught that ball, uh, probably would have saved a run. After the game, A.J. Hinch basically said, yeah, I would have preferred the double play. The reason you know that, Tigers play the infield in all the time. Also a very aggressive strategy, trying to cut down that run at home. The infield was not in. They were back, which tells you A.J. Hinch wanted the two outs in that situation. But Scope thought he had a play at home, and he was right, and it just didn't quite work out. So we could debate all day, should he have done this, should he not have done this. The double play was technically the right move, but these guys aren't robots, and I don't think Friday's play against the Blue Jays happens if not for the um, the double play ball five days prior that didn't work out. So now this 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 play against the Blue Jays is just totally fascinating in its own way. If you look at it, Scope was just charging up on the batter, on the bunt. AJ Hinch said it's about as close as he's ever seen a first baseman uh, get to the batter, and I, I would have to agree with that. In the moment, it was this amazing read and react play, and then I, I was kind of watching it back, and I was like, did A.J. Hinch come up with some kind of crazy, like, modified wheel bunt defense? Like, you don't really see the wheel play in the majors a lot, but you'll see it in high school where uh, both corner infielders charge in and the shortstop goes to third, and you try to get the lead, the lead runner out at third. And I was like, did Hinch like orchestrate some kind of thing where that was almost planned and Jamer knew to retreat right away and get back to third. That wasn't the case, uh, even though it's almost something I could see A.J. Hinch doing. But it was. It was Scope just being an athlete, being an aggressive fielder. He gets that. He makes kind of a risky throw to third, but the Tigers get a huge, huge out that probably um, saved the game for him. So that's my take. I do not fault Jonathan Scope for being an aggressive fielder. In fact, I like it. Sometimes that means you're going to make a mistake. Sometimes that means you don't get the double play. But it's a lot of fun to watch. It's really interesting to talk about. Well, not only that, so on the the post-game, not the post-game show, but the on-field interview after Friday night's game, Jonathan actually said that he told Jamer the bunts oh, coming yeah, my way. If the bunts oh. coming my way, I'm going to you. So get back oh. to third. So so Scope made his own modified wheel. He like he, he did it, and it was like planned aggression. Which I mean, God, what a that's that's what they do on the base pass, like I said. So Jamer knew to get back as soon as the bunt was going to you know down the first base side and. Not to take anything away from Jonathan Scope, that's also a difficult play for Jamer at third because oh, yeah. he's charging, he's all momentum forward, and then he's got to pivot, go backward, and it's not, he's a third baseman. So that's not necessarily, I know he has a little bit of first base experience, but I, yeah. I do think I do think the first base experience yeah. was real there and helped him. Just finding your footing on the that's bag, an athletic, you're kind of going backward is not easy to and, do. And, and again, like the other side of the diamond, so like, it, that's an athletic play by Jamer, uh, and it wasn't, and it was, you know, Scope had to throw it perfectly, had to be placed perfectly, Jamer had to be right in the right spot, because it wasn't like the guy was out by a mile, like, yeah. it, it was a close play, so I, I, I thought it was awesome, and I, I appreciate Jonathan Scope kind of being like, you know, this is me, this is who I am, you know, like, I'm, I'm yeah. gonna try to 
try to get as many I'm going to try to prevent as many runs as possible as a defender and I don't fault him one bit like honestly if that throw had gone over Grayson Griner's head I wouldn't fault the decision execution's different but he also executed it on that play I would say like yeah. perfectly it was right there like that's a that's a play a major league catcher should make and Griner knows that uh that's that's all he's got to do is kind of catch it and you know the runner would have just he would have been an easy tag or whatever um so in my opinion that was smart baseball maybe the manager preferred this because it's worth the two outs for the run like i get that but i still can i would still consider it a smart baseball play by jonathan scope and from his end executed perfectly both times I got I got a comment on Twitter from at Michael Domps, who said it's disingenuous to compare the two. It's a different strategy late in the game versus early in the game. Not to mention it was a tag at home versus a, a force out and a double play. And his play last week last week was literally the wrong baseball play. As I think we've covered, that is all true. But at the same time, I don't think the Blue Jays play happens without. Jonathan Scope just being an aggressive player. Uh, again, it's it's one of those things. This can all this kind of mirrors some analytical arguments sometimes, and that's not what I'm trying to get into. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that dude's wrong because he's not. He's got numbers on his side. But this is a sports are a nuanced game, and some there are moments where you kind of buck the trend in order to get this immediate dividend and. Like, I just don't. You, just, I, I would not. I would never go as far as to say that was the wrong baseball play. Like, mm-hmm. I that that just wouldn't be something I'd be comfortable saying. Even if the number, I would just say like the better play would have been to get two outs because of you know this number is that number. But I wouldn't say cutting a runner down at home, preventing runs when like when on offense they have to manufacture runs. So on defense, whatever the opposite of manufacturing is, you know, you know, you got to save runs. Like that's, that's a really good way to phrase it. The double play is probably the better, smarter play, but cutting a runner down at home is almost the definition of a baseball play. You know, maybe that is the better baseball play in terms of the aggressiveness. Some of the best plays in the history of the game have not been very textbook. Think Derek Jeter's flip, you know, think of, um, gosh, I'm sure I could come up with other examples if we sat and talked about. Well, it, basically, but. anytime uh, you could argue, a lot of times stretching a, any anything that's called stretching a what into a what is that the be- better yeah. baseball play? Stretch a single into a double or a uh, double into a triple? Probably not. But there are moments, and the best athletes know when to pick their spots. And so, like, and he picked his spot there, and from his end, it worked out. From his specific part of the play, it worked out, you know. And and I'm and I'm, and I'm in a sl- kind of weird way. I'm a little bit happy that like Griner dropped the ball because it allows us to have this discussion with the you know with the combination of the two <laughs> plays. Because yeah, we wouldn't. Yeah. We, we, this is not a fascinating discussion if Griner catches the ball and tags a guy out. Like it's it's probably closer to a one off. Whereas because it didn't work out, because people got outraged, because AJ saying like like would. It would probably wouldn't have been talked about that much on post game if if uh, if if he gets him out, you know what I mean? And and yeah, and and to be clear, AJ didn't fault Scope for the double play either. He was like, no, I probably would have preferred the double play, but he was 
you know, it's not like he told Scope to stop doing that yeah. or anything. Um, and, and, and he brought it up Friday. He said, you know, aggressive plays, we knock them when they don't work out, and then we praise them when they do yeah, work out. Remember what he, he said that about uh, Miguel Cabrera early in the season when he, like, tagged from third inexplicably? Yeah, so, uh, well, that... The Tigers and all their outs on the bases, I keep bringing this up. Some of them are a product of aggression. I do think there are too many just bad base running mistakes, like Scope uh, getting tagged out on the bases yeah. the other day. He's just like, that was just a bad mistake. Miguel Cabrera inexplicably tagging was just, I think, a bad, dumb mistake. AJ didn't want to knock his star player, so he, he mentioned the aggressiveness, but... The Tigers do make too many just dumb mistakes that I don't think are a product of that aggression. They're just they're just bad. Well, I mean, sometimes you gotta you know, sometimes you gotta get a couple no's from some fine ladies at nighttime establishments before you can get a yes. You know, some sometimes sometimes things work out, sometimes they don't. I mean, you know, it it I'm not I'm I'm not gonna the mindset I'm going to credit more than knock if that makes sense for a lot of these aggressive especially this season that will change if the lineup improves and you can you know get guys that hit into the gap or hit over the wall with consistency but uh, again and I said we could talk about the scope play for an hour and it seems like we have uh, quickly an appreciation of Friday night's game um, there was a bunt. In extra innings, Gregory Soto going two innings. The scope play, Harold Castro pinch hitting. I think it's amazing that A.J. Hinge, the manager of the Astro Ball Astros, kind of the most analytic, heavy team probably ever, is winning games with this small ball and this grit. And as we've talked about with the base running, oftentimes it's blended with analytics and data. It was just amazing to watch. And Friday night's game was a... a master class in managing baseball and kind of a reminder that having some feel taking some risks there's still a place for that in this game especially when you have a lineup like you have now yeah very true and uh and the lineup that should look a little bit more the usual here pretty soon with uh Derek Hill getting activated over the weekend yeah and uh Akil Badu presumably coming in the st louis series i believe is the uh the expectation so let's move on to one of the stories you wrote this week uh we just passed the one year anniversary for the call-up of Tarek skubal casey mize and isak paredes so when i read your story i was like oh i really forgot that Isak was a part of that call up and part of that hype machine. I I I would oh, I'm trying to remember in the moment, Cody. I mean, he was just as like the fans were pretty dang excited. I mean, I don't think it was too far behind Scooble. Not Mice. Yeah, it I don't think there would have been the excitement if he wasn't part of that package, if he had just debuted on his own and been like, oh, Isak's playing tonight. This is cool. Let's see how he does. But because he was part of that package, it kind of helped the hype around him grow. And it's all right. We're bringing up our top two pitchers. Oh, and our number six prospect at third baseman. He can swing it a little bit. I think that kind of inflated the the Isak hype a little bit. Um, but it was still warranted at the time, you know. He was he was a good player, a good prospect. Still is. Obviously, things have not gone well yeah. for him. So crazy. We talk about 
a lot of the discussion in your story is like, you know, difference a year makes. Unfortunately, that's yeah. There's the other end of yeah, that. So too. with yeah. uh, so that stood out to me. Also, remembering the numbers that those guys had last season, because I remember, I remember sitting on my back porch, like listening to Dan and Jim, and it's like, all right, Scoobles debut, and you know, Tim Anderson comes up, and what was it, the third pitch, and it's just a blast, and I was like, whoo. Talk about talk about emotionally deflating, you know, and uh, and and I tweeted at the time. I'll never forget. I was I was in a pretty dark place. It was the summer of the pandemic, and uh, I I got to go to that game and see the Scooble debut, and I was like, all right, finally, like something cool happens. Anderson hits that blast, and I tweeted, like, this is why you should never get your hopes up for anything. It's the best defense mechanism. <laughs> For the record, everybody, Cody was fresh <laughs> off a breakup at that point. <laughs> it was, you know, that, that that affects a man's mood. There's no doubt about that. But uh, it's funny looking back now. It's funny looking back now. And Casey had his struggles as well. Um, they both had, like, seven ERAs, you know, and... Uh, Six, nine, nine, I think yeah, was Casey. Yeah, and... Scoobles a little over. And so... When we were doing this podcast, you talk. We talked a lot about like, is Casey okay? You know, and that seems like a you know just a year ago in and of itself from that yeah. that game down in Houston, uh, where he basically put his foot down and said, "Yes, MFers, I'm here. I you know I'm Casey, MFing Mize." Um, he actually had two terrible starts. He after did. That. <laughs> And then he had like a 1.74 ERA in May. And that was when he strung some starts together. That was when it was really like, no, nah, I'm here. Well, I remember because he was going up against Grinky in that Houston game. And I'll, and we both said, it's like, if, yeah, if he's going to come up, start. if he's going to come up, this is the game to come up. And to his credit, he did. So you talked to both of them sort of with their reflection on how the past year had gone. Uh, people should read the story on The Athletic. But in terms of... Real quick, not enough of y'all read that. I thought that story was going to get what? more reads. It didn't. It didn't perform that well. So if you haven't read it, come on. I'd appreciate it if you give it a, give it a read. I mean, if you're yeah, if you're a subscriber to the Athletic, there's no excuse for not reading it because these are the two guys that are pillars of your franchise. And if you're not a subscriber to the Athletic, you know, shame on you because you just, you missed out on a fifty percent deal a couple of weeks ago, and you can't read in depth analysis and comments. From Casey Mize and Tarek School about how they've been the past year, in addition to a million other things. But side side note, sidetracked right there. <laughs> you you talking to them sort of like and not over Zoom. You're able to do it like in person. In person in the dugout. It was great. So, it was very nice. How did take us to like how they were saying those words? Like how reflective were they? Were they, you know, like. You, you you were able to be there, like I said, be there in person and kind of read them a little bit as they're reflecting on their more or less first year as big league ball players. So what what can you what could you glean from that end of reporting the story? Yeah, I really enjoyed talking to both guys. It was kind of a reminder that I had not talked to either of them in person in quite a long time, and. Uh, I guess I, I've actually had one-on-ones with both of them before, but they were still just kind of prospects then. I had not had a one-on-one with them as established major league players talking about life in the big leagues. And I really enjoyed both conversations. 
both really intelligent guys. I thought they they flowed pretty well the entire time. Um, Mize is probably quoted more in the story because he is a better quote, but the conversation with Scooble was actually like as natural and, and as good of, of an interview as maybe, you know, as I've ever had with him. And there was a level of reflection for both guys. You know, I kind of asked, does it seem like a year? And as I point out in the story, they were both like, man, things were so different. So much has changed um, since the time they made their debuts. It kind of feels like three three years ago or something. It almost feels that way to me, and it, it, it kind of does to them too. And, yeah, for them to take a moment and reflect, kind of look big picture at all the growth over the past year, you know, I, I think they enjoyed kind of retracing those steps, thinking back to the moment they got called up and Mize, you know, um, his wife going crazy while he's on the phone with Dave Littlefield and Scooble missing the phone call while he was playing video games, you know, stuff like that. They, they kind of laughed and are able to look back on it now. And then again, it, it was almost like talking to, uh, like you hear Kirk Gibson on the broadcast talk about how like, Al Kaline and Jim Leland were just on him like his first spring training and now he hated it at the time and now he appreciates it. It was almost like that listening to Mize and Scooble talk about last season and how tough it was and now how glad they are that it happened and how, how happy they are to be on the other side of it. Maybe you can't say this, I don't know, but was there anything to the whole I wasn't myself thing from Scooble? I thought that was a really interesting comment. He didn't get specific on what he meant by that uh but you know Scooble had that string of starts in April into May where he wasn't good and this was after a phenomenal spring training and Scooble said he started feeling something off late in spring in his first outing of the year even though those were good performances and I think it was just one of those baseball things where you're you know, it didn't seem like he was talking about pain or an injury. He was just, he just didn't have his stuff, you know, maybe kind of a, a dead arm period a little bit, but he knew that before anyone else knew it. And I don't know, it was just interesting to hear him say that his velo, his spin rates were noticeably down at the time and he knew something was off. Um, luckily he, he wasn't hurt and the Tigers scaled him back pitched him out of the pen for a couple games and he became back to himself really quickly. And now we're in August and he's, he's having a very good string of starts. The, the, the last thing that really stood out for me from that article. Um, and as we've said, and, uh, that's no secret Casey Mize really in-depth guy, as we say, a thinker. Uh, I really like this quote where he was talking about his preparation and he said, execution is at the forefront of what I do now. That's such a Casey Mize quote. <laughs> and yeah. And what it when I read that I was like he's essentially saying like there's no more promising young pitcher, promising young prospect attached to his name. He's a major league pitcher now. How good of a major league pitcher could he will he be? And that's where the execution comes in. I thought that was I thought that was like he's a, he he in his mind he transitioned. Like we talked about how he's no longer we you know before on this podcast about he's he's no longer this, he's now this. But 
that tells me that he has the maturity. And not that I probably wouldn't have guessed this anyway, knowing what I know about Casey Mize. But that tells me that he has the maturity to look at it that way too. And not just like, hey, this is kind of fun. I'm playing baseball in the major leagues. You know, I got a pretty, pretty, pretty cool paycheck. You know, I thought that was... I thought that was really, really great to hear from a guy who, in theory, will be, you know, anchoring your rotation for, you know, an indefinite period of time. Yeah, this interview was also a big reflection of the confidence Casey Mize carries himself with. There's kind of a thing in the big leagues where if you're a rookie, which he's technically still a rookie, even if you're a highly touted prospect, you just kind of keep your head down and and you definitely aren't supposed to be outspoken in the media and even in the clubhouse. You kind of are supposed to keep it to yourself when you're a rookie. You know, that's just how it is. Uh, Mize said, I think this year has been a good step forward. I think we're positioning ourselves. We're doing everything we need to do to hopefully make some noise this off season and add some players that could really help. We've got a good team right now, and I think we can take it to the next level with a couple of ads. So here's a rookie basically telling Chris Illich, like, <laughs> get us some players. Let's go win the World Series. You know, that that tells you that Mize knows his importance to this franchise, is able to carry himself as a cornerstone rotation piece, even though he's uh, kind of, you know, he's technically still a rookie, putting it all together at the big league level. Uh, he wants to be a face of this franchise. And, yeah, he's sitting here saying we – you know, we need a couple ads to take it to the next level. So I loved that, and, and that requires some confidence as a young player to say something like that. But it shows that it, it shows that Casey Mice has confidence, and it shows he cares about the franchise and its future as well. Yeah, very true. And so they were a wave, Mize and Scooble and, and Manning, although obviously came this year as opposed to last year. They were sort of a prospect wave that overcame the franchise. Uh, the next one is building and it's on its way not this year but it's on its way and that's that's in the form of riley green spencer torkelson and ryan kreidler because uh, they got the bump from double a to triple a last weekend uh shortly after you had just spent some time in erie uh you know hanging out with them and and now they're even closer uh, up in uh, down in toledo so drawing a little bit of an analogy here you can Tell me I'm dumb, or if you got one better, uh, is Ryan Kreidler the Tarek Skubal of this wave? Where, you know, you have the two first-round picks, uh, you know, including one of them being a number one overall in each set, and then a guy who kind of rises his status, doesn't come out of nowhere because he was a higher pick than Skubal, but, you know, rises his status to kind of get into the conversation with those more well-known guys. Is is Kreidler the Scooble of this wave? I wouldn't quite call him the Scooble. Scooble became like a top 25 prospect in baseball, kind of out of nowhere. I don't think Kreidler's ceiling is probably as high as a hitter as, as Scooble's might be as a pitcher, but Kreidler's very much the type of player that winning organizations develop you get a fourth round pick and he's got some tools okay can you turn him into a big leaguer who can contribute whether he's a starter whether he's a utility man whether he plays 10 years or five years or uh, comes off the bench for you for two years and does some nice things Kreidler's that type of guy that the Tigers have not been great at developing um, especially in recent years 
so Kreidler's a developmental win for the organization right now, um, especially if he continues on this trajectory. We talked about his game pretty in-depth last week on the pod. I wrote about him this week on The Athletic. Now, I would say uh, if there's a, a scooble in this system, it's Colt Keith. Keith, you know, sixth-round pick out of high school in the shortened 2020 draft. He was always kind of an upside pick. Well, this year in the low rungs of the minors, he's hitting 345. He's got a 457 one base percentage. Only one home run, but this is still a guy that's going to grow into his power. He's probably still too young for us to really project what he could be, but the fact the kid's hitting in his first year of pro ball at age, what, 19, I think is is quite telling. I think Keith might just be on a Scooble-esque trajectory. On the list of Kreidler's accomplishments, how high does overcoming Cody Stavenhagen's skepticism rank? Uh, because, because you know, you're you're the journalist. This is what you're supposed to do. This is not criticism. This is what you're supposed to do. You're the journalist. You see somebody who's getting all this hype, and you're like, come on. Like, really? You know, like, it, it can't really be that. And... You went, and to your credit, you went with an open mind, not not uh, trying to justify your previous opinion, and were impressed to a certain extent. Uh, and, I'm not, and again, I'm not trying to overhype anything, but like you know, you came away like, okay, okay, you know, Kreidler, I, I see why people are, you know, falling falling in love with this guy. So how high does that rank? I mean, that's that's not an easy I'm, thing, I'm, people. I'm, I'm easier to win over than people think. You just gotta, you just gotta know. There are a few things. Taylor Swift lyrics, good salsa, good seafood, good barbecue, and good infield footwork. <laughs> those things will. That's all. That's all. You have one of those things. Like you got me. Um, there are certain things I care about a lot. I saw Ryan Kreidler moving around the infield. I was like, this guy looks like an infielder, and he's touted as a very good defensive player. Arnie Baylor. The manager down at Double A said he could play in the big leagues defensively right now. In Erie, they were also calling him captain. So he does have kind of that shortstop, Jeter-esque, I'm the leader of the infield vibe. Now at the plate, I'm still a little skeptical of Kreidler. Um, he's got a, a 30-plus percent strikeout rate in Double A. Um, he does have some pop. His swing, actually, again, I only saw him three games. Looked better than I thought. There was less swing and miss in that three-game series than I was expecting to see. Now, hitting at the big leagues is a totally different thing. He's going to see more velo, more spin. I'm worried the bat might not quite be there, but I like the bat better than I thought I was going to, too, just based on, on kind of the eye test. Tim McGraw, Taylor Swift, references. This is officially a great episode. So, uh... <laughs> In AAA, what? Well, first of all, we can't not mention Kreidler's start to AAA. Uh, home run, home yeah, runs, and in, in, in well. back-to-back games. Uh, Riley Green's had some. Had some, he has a home run too, right? I don't follow this as much as some of the guys at the minor league report. Uh, I can't remember. I don't believe he has a homer, but he's he's playing yeah, well. Yeah, he's, he's and he, Torque uh, tripled the other he's night. He's doing some raking. He just Torque just missed a home run uh, yesterday, I believe. So, all three of them, at least, you know, very, very, very small sample size, but all three of them kind of look like guys who earned a promotion from AA to AAA. And and that's all you can really ask for. We talked 
on this podcast, and then we were guests on the the Tigers minor league report um, about the differences between Double A AA and Triple A. So we don't have to rehash it too much. But AJ Hinch said they're not coming up this year to the bigs. And that's what I believe the right move. And but next year, uh, I, I I tell my dad I was like these are guys that are gonna get real looks to make the major league team, and they might not break lakeland but they're not going to be far behind that'd be kind of my prediction based on where we're trending toward uh is that is that kind of what you're thinking is the the most realistic possibility i think it's i i think it might be closer than some people think than even the tigers are letting on i think you know aj and al have kind of said you know some point next season some point next summer I think that's because they don't want to set the expectation that, oh, these guys break camp or these guys uh, do this or do that. If, if these these are really good players, Torkelson and Green especially, it makes it kind of tricky when you start um, constructing next year's roster because what do you do at first base? What do you do in the outfield? Do you really want to add someone when you know these guys are going to be up at some point? We'll let, number one, let's see what the new CBA looks like. What will the service time rules be? Uh, Alavila has said he's not a not a guy who likes to manipulate service time, but they didn't call Casey Mize up until uh, it saved him a year of service time. And if you're a GM and you can have these guys an extra year, although it's not a very pro labor thing, it's probably the smart thing to do if you're if you're on you know if you're the GM. But that might not be a thing based on the next CBA. What if what if you get to Lakeland and Torkelson and Green crush in spring training? Because it could happen. Riley Green's done it before. You're really going to leave him down there? You're really going to take, I don't know, some first baseman on a minors deal or Willie Castro or Harold Castro over having Torkelson in your infield? You're really going to do that? I think it will depend how they finish this season, how they perform in spring training, I would not rule out them breaking with the team. I wouldn't rule it out. It might not happen, but I wouldn't rule it out. It's a very good point. And again, this could be something that is uh, not a thing anymore, like you said, with the new CBA. Uh, I We're seeing in Chicago with the Chris Bryant thing, like that manipulation left a really bad taste in his mouth. And, and that was a relationship that started sour they had a lot of success, but that success did not erode the the bitter taste Chris Bryant had by uh, by having to stay in AAA for I don't know like two weeks or you know whatever it was, and so it's a real thing. And if I'm looking at it, as much as it would be nice to have another year of team control or whatever, uh, I kind of I kind of don't want to ruin a relationship if you're really bought in on this guy. So. I don't. I think it probably won't be a thing next year. Well, r- real quick, do not have to spend a lot, of, a lot of time on this, but you like the idea of a salary floor that was that was proposed this week. Um, I need to read up on it more, honestly, before I before That's I fair. comment. Uh, I know Ken Rosenthal reported on it. There was a lot of stuff going on. I actually have not read that story, so I will read it and report back to you next week. Seems like a pro labor move, right? So I'm probably in favor. Yeah, uh, and again, I haven't done a whole lot of research. I'm kind of saving that for maybe like one of our off-season topics or whatever. But uh, yeah. but I feel like without going in depth, feels like a nice thing. 
though I don't, I don't like I said could be wrong looking into it more uh, but seems like a nice thing and uh, I will say this though about for people that will get the reports about you know players want this teams want that always be cognizant of like like more teams in the playoffs that seems like a really great thing right well players might not want that because owners won't like spend as much money because they can make the playoffs while being cheaper and then rake in more dollars while decreasing costs so mm-hmm. a lot so player the players association is against that a lot of times for that reason so there's always more in depth. That was just an anecdote. So there's always more to it. There's more in depth there. So that's uh, an example of why, like you know, neither one of us will give like a huge opinion about the the CBA proposal. But I just want didn't know if you had uh, a quick take on that. So why don't we do our uh, AJ Hinch suggestion box and then we'll rank some bromances on the Detroit Tigers. So I'll go. I'll go first with the suggestion box. Hold on. Hold on. I need another victory lap. And you do as well. Oh, yeah. AJ Hinch, he got tossed. Epically, uh, by the way. He got tossed. Epic. Just epic. And then he was still fired up post-game, dropped a couple curse words. I loved it. I was... The situation called for him getting tossed. The umpires did botch the review. It sounds like uh, Hunter Windelstad, the umpire, was was not being super kind to AJ when he went out there. But I like to think AJ thought, he went out there pretty fired up. I like to think AJ thought, ah, oh, this might be the time I get tossed. Get the home crowd behind you, you know? Yeah. I wanted him to do it in a close game. I The score was 9-2, to two, or I think at that time. I don't think that was an accident because I talked, I don't think AJ likes to lose control of the game. So I think, unfortunately, he was like, ah, oh, we kind of got this one in the bag. Let's make it today. And Tigers went on to lose that game also in epic fashion. But he got tossed. They did not uh, claim Marwin Gonzalez. I don't know that I can take a huge victory lap because I don't even know if if they considered it. I think for reasons we outlined last week, they you know it wasn't that much of a consideration. But I'm killing it, and I teed up AJ um, for Kieran and asked him about Jamer Candelario the other day. I was kind of talking Jamer and Robbie Grossman both rank in the top 15 on hitting fastballs. So I kind of asked him about that. That led to talking more about Jamer and his approach. And AJ ended up giving a really long answer on Jamer, talking about the things Kieran brought up last week. He might not have the homers, but he said he really admires Jamer for staying within himself. He mentioned his doubles. He mentioned his OPS. And he you know, kind of said he's become a really consistent guy who gives you good at-bats every day. So he did indeed give Jamer a little extra love in the media. Shout out. No offense to all of our listeners whom we love, but shout out to number one listener, AJ Hinch. Absolutely. I mean, we credit AJ a lot, but maybe we're the ones managing this team. We, we, we sure are right when here quite a lot. And, you know, it takes... My guy equally... Renato, my guy Renato has been DFA, yeah. but he did, he did get a brief second chance. It takes a, another genius to recognize genius. So <laughs> AJ Hinch, listening to us... He's also a genius. So for this week, AJ, talking to you, buddy, <laughs> uh, Daz Cameron is back, uh, back healthy for now. Unfortunately, he's had a long list of sort of nagging injuries, I guess is what you could call them. And yeah. I want to know what Daz Cameron is. Like we talked about this with, you know, speaking of Jamer, we talked about this with Jamer a while back now and we got, we got answers, you know? And so 
I there's a little less than 40 games I believe left in the season, and I want to know what Daz Cameron is. I want to know what role you and the organization see for him that he could have like next year. Not like if he reaches his peak, but just like what you what what could he be? And I more or less want him played in that role as many times as possible to end the season. So if you envision him as a center fielder with Derek and right or an Akeel and left or you know switch Derek and, and Daz, I want to see that. If you envision him, he was batting like fifth the other game. If you see him as sort of like a middle, not middle of the order, but you know what I mean, like sort of like back end, middle back end of the order yeah, guy. Six, yeah, seven, yeah. Maybe like another setup, you know, and, and and as the rotation turns, put him there. If you think, could he be a leadoff? You know, spot him a leadoff spot every now and then. I just, you have this opportunity to do what you would do in spring training now, where you're going to put him in situations and it's not just him, but for him specifically, put him in situations to see what he can do and not to diminish the remaining games or whatever, but you're not in a pennant race. So you you have this, like I said, you have this opportunity and games that matter to see what he's made of in situations and in certain roles. And so I think whatever he does the rest of this year, if you do it this way, you parlay that into spring training, then you have a lot of data and games to look at to figure out what it, what to do with Daz Cameron. Uh, and with we, there's going to be more outfield injuries, unfortunately, uh, for the Tigers because that's what they've dealt with the entire year. So if you got him healthy now, let's not waste any time and just kind of see what he could do. So if if you know, I'm going to talk to you now, Cody, you're AJ Hinch. What is Daz Cameron? What could Daz Cameron be realistically in 2022? Like, what could he be? Hard to say for the reasons we're talking about right now. I don't think we have a good grasp on what Daz can be at the major league level. He had a week or two earlier this year before his injury where he was starting to look pretty settled in. Next year's outfield makes my head hurt a little bit because you have Badu, a left-handed bat, Grossman, a switch hitter. Hill, terrific defensive player, but not a very good hitter. Daz, who maybe I don't know. <laughs> I think he's. I think he would make sense as a fourth outfielder next year, and I think you might have to choose between him or Derek Hill, which will be a very difficult decision. Um, if Daz Cameron is to make next year's roster, I think you need to have confidence that he can handle a lot of center field for you, and you need him to be a more productive offensive player than Derek Hill. I think that means um, a little bit of slugging, you know, some extra base hits, a few homers. So I think that's that's probably best case scenario for Daz Cameron. Yeah, I mean, again, he's, uh, he's still part of that Verlander trade, and he is more in the middle in terms of, of the three guys, whereas, you know, Franklin Perez, unfortunately, is the opposite end of the spectrum and you know jake rogers once you reset expectations looks like you know solid major league player uh daz is teetering on could go either direction yeah now the outfield of badu hill cameron i hope we see badu hill cameron or yeah um in the outfield 
That would excite um, me very much. Soon. Yeah. That'd be a ton of fun. Maybe next year's outfield could be Badu, Hill, Cameron, Grossman. That just really worries me offensively. You only have – you don't have a right-handed bat that is that is proven. You have Badu, who's a good hitter from the left side, Grossman, who's a good hitter. But you don't have a lot of pop in that outfield. So, again, yeah, you know what would make that a lot easier? If Das Cameron plays well, if Das Cameron shows you he's got some pop, if he shows you he can handle some center field. Anyway, or if he doesn't my, play well and you don't have to worry about it, then you move on. Then you can go find someone else with a little with a little pop. Yeah. Um, my AJ, AJ Hinch suggestion: Let's keep Tyler Alexander in the starting rotation for the rest of this season, and let's give him a long look as a fifth starter next season. Todd, as he's known, pitched a really good game Friday against the Blue Jays. He does not have overpowering stuff, but the guy throws strikes. We saw it when he struck out nine hitters in a row last season. He had six Ks um, Friday night against the Blue Jays. He's steady. He's dependable. He's not great. His career ERA is in the mid-fours. His career ERA as a starter and reliever, pretty comparable, about the same. Uh, but there's a place for guys like that on teams, even good teams. The Tigers are going to get Matthew Boyd and probably Jose Urania back here soon, but because they are uh, pitching Mize and Scooble on extended rest, they're probably going to go with kind of a six-man rotation for a while. So that's going to leave you room to keep Tyler in the rotation. I, I would take him over Willie Peralta. And, you know, if you whittle it back down to five, I... Look, Jose Urania's on an expiring contract. Are you, what what do you really want to see out of him? I would I would uh, maybe move him to the pin and keep starting Tyler Alexander. And then you're going to need to add a pitcher or two next season. You're going to have Mize Manning Scooble, probably a veteran starter, um, and then probably a rotation spot that's up for grabs. There will be guys, Joey Wentz, Alex Fiedo, who could be kind of vying, but it's going to probably make sense for those guys to start in the minors. Especially two Tommy John guys. Yeah, two Tommy John guys. Um, look, we, you could go out and sign another Jose Urania, or you could roll Tyler Alexander, who can throw you some strikes, have a 4.5 ERA, not be phenomenal, but give you a chance to win some baseball games. I don't really like power pitchers with stuff who can get strikeouts. That's what plays in the modern age. But to go along with the A.J. Hinch uh, making small ball cool again, maybe we make just command feel pitchers cool again. Tyler Alexander fits that bill. I want to see more of him as a start. Do you want to see the mustache remain? No, I don't like the mustache. It's 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 a cool joke. Look, I think Jake's looks terrible. I'm with A.J. I'm like, dude, you got to shave this. Um Tyler has copied the Jake Rogers mustache. I asked him post-game Friday, is the mustache staying because you had a good start? He was actually a little more non-committal than I thought. He's like, yeah, it's staying until it gets annoying. <laughs> like, so he's he seems less committed to the stash than Jake Rogers, but uh, and I don't like it. I think it looks stupid and ridiculous. But if he's pitching well with it, then then you got to keep. I will say this, uh, what, what AJ said about Jamer sort of like, you know, being comfortable with himself or whatever, uh, Tyler's very comfortable being the pitcher who he is. He doesn't pretend that 
no, 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 I actually do have overpowering stuff. Like, he, he knows exactly, and it, maybe I'm just making this comparison because they're both lefties, but that mindset, that mentality kind of reminds me of, like, a Mike, a Mark Burley type, where it's just, like, mm, yeah. you know, just a guy who, you know, throws the ball over the plate, you know, has his arsenal, and, you know, you do what you got to do, man. I got guys behind me that are going to help me out and, you know, doesn't try to do too much. So I respect that. I respect that. And he's a guy who's kind of, you know, earned his keep a little bit with uh, being a second-round pick, going through the minors, having, like, inconsistent roles. He wants to be a starter. They keep him in the bullpen. Now he's got a shot. I agree. Keep him the starting I saw. I was at a Toledo game in 2019 that was kind of Tyler Alexander's coming out party and was kind of what got him promoted to the majors. He started that game. I think he went seven innings. I'll have to look how long he went. He struck out, I think, 11 or 12 batters. Like, somehow the guy gets strikeouts, probably because he, oh, I don't know, throws strikes, which we've seen a lot of Tigers pitchers who haven't thrown strikes. Tyler's not sexy. He's not uh, whatever, but he's kind of overlooked a lot. Man, I think this guy continues to prove that that he's ready for some sort of bigger role. Another off-the-field uh, event that happened this week, Cody. Bill Freehan, who was the catcher of the 1968 Detroit Tigers, world champion Detroit Tigers, uh, passed away. Um, he had a long battle with dementia. And one of those things where if you hear people talk about it, it seems like, you know, one of those, like, he's at peace now type deals. It's another reminder of all those players that we grew up like hearing about. And then like our fathers like grew up like watching and reading about in real time, um, you know, no longer with us. And I can say from someone of our generation, uh, obviously I always knew about him and, and knew his, you know, integral part of the, the Tigers success. Uh, I have had several jobs where a lot of it's like research based and I look at like his numbers and his accolades and I was like, God, no one, I can't ever remember a Hall of Fame conversation like nationally with Bill Freehand. And if you just look at the, the raw numbers, it definitely seems like he should, there should be a conversation. And then if you look at the analytics uh the war specifically uh yeah yeah that guy seems like someone who really ought to be looked at the hall of fame especially you know with some of the guys that they've let in recently on the uh, modern baseball committee or whatever they call it now um he was a five-time gold glove winner he was second place in mvp voting in 1968 only behind denny mclean and was like an 11 time all-star um or, or something like that and he was there every day i think jim price on the radio said there were like two seasons or dan uh dickerson said it there were like two seasons where he caught like over 140 games i mean just just ridiculous the the how good of a baseball player he was and as someone who obviously you know didn't grow up you know, reading about these guys or hearing about these guys to the extent that I would, or you know, your you know, your Tigers fans would. Um, sort of similar when I asked you the Lou Whitaker thing. He says Lou Whitaker, a Hall of Famer in your mind. I would maybe ask you the same about Bill. Does he meet your criteria for who should be in the Hall of Fame? Yeah, Bill Freehan is another one of those guys that I didn't know a ton about growing up. Again, like you said, he just kind of wasn't 
mentioned in that canon for some reason, even though I think he should have been. Um, and since covering the Tigers, I obviously have a better grasp on his career and his numbers. I've heard Jim Price and others um, rave about how integral he was to that 68 team, to that entire era of Tigers baseball. Like Lou Whitaker, you know, I have more appreciation for his career now that I know more about it. Like Lou Whitaker, I think he absolutely has a legit Hall of Fame case. Um, a lot of times the knock on Whitaker is that, well, he wasn't really dominant. He was just very good for, you know, 18, 19, 20 years. Well, B Bill Freehand started seven consecutive All-Star games from 66 to 72. Johnny Bench was the dominant catcher in the NL, and Bill Freehand was the dominant, the preeminent catcher in the AL. He won five gold gloves. He was a runner-up for the MVP, and he had a third-place finish in MVP voting. So this guy was up there at his peak. He ranked 16th among catchers with 44.8 uh, career wins above replacement. Jay Jaff, who devised the Jaws metric, which is basically a measure of a player's Hall of Fame worthiness, ranks Freehand as the 16th best catcher of all time. I think the 16th best catcher of all time deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. There are catchers such as Roy Campanella, several um, way older guys, Roger Bresnahan, Ernie Lombardi, and Ray Schalk, who Freehand ranks above, who are in the Hall of Fame. These metrics, he ranks above Yadier Molina, who that one the end of really yeah. stood out to me. And will probably be a Hall of Famer, or I don't think anyone case. thinks he's not. Yeah. I mean. Um. So it's interesting, you know. I didn't. Joey Votto has been talked a lot about this week. I didn't think of Votto as a Hall of Famer, and then I looked at his numbers, like, oh, this guy's this guy's a Hall of Famer without a question. Bill Freehand. Um, does not get a lot of do. He was only on the Hall of Fame ballot once, I believe. It was kind of a loaded ballot. You know, you can only put, I, I think, is it 10 on your ballot yeah, in a single 10. year? Even Joe Falls, the uh, legendary Detroit writer, did not include Bill Freehand on his Hall of Fame ballot. Um, I think that's a shame. One of those things that could be rec um, rectified. It's a shame um, that would now have to be posthumously after after Bill's passing, but he was a terrific catcher and I think absolutely worthy of being in the Hall of Fame. And just uh, a little bit more context with the with that war list that you were just looking at. You said, as you said, Bill is 16. The only players ahead of him who are not in the Hall of Fame are uh, Joe Maurer, who obviously uh, not eligible yet. Uh, and Thurman Munson, that's a whole different discussion. And Buster Posey, same thing. And Gene, Gene Tannis, who, I, to be honest, I don't know that much about. But, uh, but yeah, so basically everybody ahead of him, more or less, is or will be in the Hall of Fame. And as you said, baseball's been around a long time. And if he's objectively in the top 20 at catcher, it's hard, it's hard yeah. to justify. It's hard to justify. So, uh, hopefully he is at peace. Um, he will forever be remembered for that glorious 1968 team and uh, a real Michigan man as, uh, as they come and who grew up or was born not too far from where you are right now, actually. So, yeah, very true. So, hopefully he and his fa or his family 
know how much he is beloved by the Detroit Tigers community. All right, let's end on this. Got some bromances. You wrote about some bromances. We talked about Riley Green, Spencer Turkelson, Casey Mize, and Tarek Skubal. So I jotted down some bromances, and we can just kind of rank them a little bit and uh, and have some fun. So I, I jotted down Derek Hill and Akil Badu. Those two are, are linked off the field as well as on with that collision that unfortunately left them both a little injured. They both attended a Detroit Lions practice together. So did Manning and Scooble. So I grouped them together because they went to a Detroit Lions practice together, and I did not see Casey Mize. Hmm. Uh, as I said, Spencer and Riley. Hinch and Chris Fetter, uh, the masterminds, the masterminds behind this, uh, this turnaround that we're witnessing. And I can't not have Casey Mize in there. So I paired Casey Mize, I just said, Detroit Stars. And not the, Meyer, not the old Negro League team. Uh, he was the recipient of the first pitch from Kay Cunningham and Calvin Johnson within a short period of time. To me, that I was like, man, like Casey Mize is like on the hierarchy with Calvin Johnson and like Kay Cunningham in a way that they sent him out there to be a part of that moment. Like that's so it's sort of like in basketball, like the last guy announced in the starting lineup. It's like, oh, he's the guy. So like the person who gets to catch the uh, first pitch, he when I mean, you got like a big time celebrity out there, he's the guy. Like no offense to you or me, but if we threw out the first pitch, Casey Mize wouldn't catch it. No, probably not. So I so I so I put Mize with other Detroit stars. So where do you where do you, where do you what's your power rankings for the bromances with the Tigers? Yeah, from having observed it in spring training. The My Scooble thing is more of a bromance. They're two serious guys who live together in spring training, and they like to go be serious together. And then Manning and Alex Fiedo are uh, are kind of the better pairing. They're a little bit. Can you more, pause for a second? Uh, they like to be serious together. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's, a, that's the line of the pod right there. <laughs> it's true. Those guys are about work, man. They focus on work. And then you got Manning and Fiedo over here kind of cracking jokes and, and a little more lighthearted. I'm sure they're hard workers too, but it's it's a very different vibe. And you can see kind of the pairings. Um, but I think Torque and Riley Green are currently my number one. Uh, another story I wrote this week about kind of their bromance. And they're both fun guys. They like to kind of make fun of each other. Um, Torque talking about Riley's not very good at golf. Riley's still bringing up Torque slicing his hand open, you know, trying to open the can. They do a lot of stuff together. They compete together. And, you know, they do. They, they can hit maybe next to each other in the order one day or, or both at the top of the order. I think something about, you know, you got a right-handed bat and a left-handed bat, two very different swings I think they just complement each other outfielder. so well. And because of their yeah, infielder outfielder and because of their personalities, um, which are different but both both young, pretty fun guys, I think they're I think they're the number one bromance in the organization right now. One of the things that stood out to me was you know, Spencer and Riley have had a lot of time together, but not a long period of time together, right? So they 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 basically like meet each other during training last year, 
and you know they go through spring training together and then they go to the minors together it's, it you know we're talking about a year and and they seem like two guys that you know kind of you know real recognize real and it seemed like a pretty quick bond same thing even less time with Derek Hill and Akil Badu who I assume yeah. met in spring training like I, it's possible they could have bumped into Probably, each other you yeah. know prior or whatever um and I don't know the depths of the minor leagues all that well but, you know possibly they could have played against each other it's I don't I, I could be wrong but I don't think so because Badu only played in high A. They have different agents. They're from different parts of the uh, opposite coasts of the U.S. You never know. There are all sorts of weird baseball yeah, connections. It, but yeah. I'd be surprised Unlikely, but I guess possible. But they seem yeah. to have like a quick-forming bond. And maybe they've kind of bonded over their own... Uh, I wouldn't say like long struggle because obviously the age difference with Hill, it's been like, you know, longer or whatever, but do being 22, but you know, high end, high status guys chosen by organizations out of high school and didn't get all the breaks. I would maybe phrase it uh, early on in their professional career. And then they both kind of emerge as major league regulars at more or less the same time. And they go, and so they go out to the, they did, they, uh, did some of the RBI stuff or, you know, the Detroit star stuff, you know, as representing the, the organization. And then they go also go out to Lions practice and catch some, uh, catch some passes from Jerichoff, which by the way, I got to mention this. You have any idea why Scooble, I believe it was Scooble, had a Romeo Quara Jersey when he went to uh, practice Be- because the they didn't go to the same college or went to uh, Notre Dame. Uh, and so like, I, hmm. I, it's a very random connection. I, that might be your next big deep dive. You can, you can tag you and Chris can, uh, <laughs> can, can do a dual byline. I was just curious, like why that Jersey? And then they start, you know, the photos that were put on social media was them like hanging out, you know, chatting or whatever after practice. And it's just, it was really random. I'm curious. Yeah. I don't know. So, well, maybe, maybe someone else knows and they can, they can tell us about it. You can. Tag Cody in any tweet at Cody Stavenhagen. I am at Kieran underscore Steckley and the pod page slash if any of us get locked out alternative Twitter page is at turn corner pod. Is there anything else we need to get into Cody? I think that's it. I just want to say we did a great job naming this podcast. People are dropping. Uh, the Tigers are turning the corner, or this player is turning the corner like multiple times per week, and I kind of laugh every time. Um, whether someone in the media or AJ or or Al says that, so we did a great job, and now it's now it's really paying off. Well, I'll tell you what, our numbers have really increased, and I don't check these all that often because I just kind of focus on you and I trying to do a good product. Um, we can't sell it. So there's not like a huge point to, but our numbers are taking off and I appreciate everybody listening. Like we just, I had a guy, I had a guy DM me and, you know, asking about being in Dallas or whatever. He's an SMU graduate, but you know, from Michigan and you know, he was very complimentative and I was like, dude, thank uh, he, thanks for listening. It's just, you know, it's just Cody and I chatting up, you know, it's cool that people are, uh, People find it entertaining, so it means a lot. It means a lot. So appreciate everybody who subscribes, Apple, Spotify, you know, follows us on Twitter, especially Cody. Um, by the way, this is how I'll end. 
We need to get you 10k followers on Twitter. Right. I mean, right. so the campaign's going to start and it's going to go to the end of the season. Get Cody to 10k. We did free Cody and that worked. So we're going to do a new hashtag. Get Cody to 10k. So be on the lookout for all sorts of fun Twitter content with that. So for Cody Stavenhagen, I'm Kieran Steckley. Thank you everybody for listening and have a great week.